Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, we step into the ring of the last profession of amateurs. Who is trading blows? Who could deliver a knockout punch? And who will be left standing when the division bells toll? And we find out where women fit into this mano a mano cabinet and shadow cabinet boxing. Hello, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. You're listening to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, the podcast where we bend the stale bread of Australian political discourse around the unappetising sausage of political events and ask, What's your source for that? (laughs) And of course, we come to you from the nation's premier university, Australian National University, and specifically from its world-renowned Crawford School of Public Policy. Joining me as always from our small studio is the wonderful Dr. Maria Tafliger. Hey there, Maria. It's uh, good to see you again. Have you regained your balance uh, given the recent political events? Uh, yeah, hi everyone, but I'm not sure I will maintain it given the terrible sausage metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I'll take that. And I'm delighted to say we have two brilliant guests with us. Virginia Hasiger AM is the director of the groundbreaking 5050 by 2030 Foundation based at the University of Canberra. Virginia, you're not really a huge barbecue fan, are you? I mean, I do know this being your husband. And no, being a vegetarian, no. I haven't eaten a sausage since 1983. <laughs> I had a bite of one in 1987 once, yeah, but that was it. Didn't do it for you? No, it didn't. No. no. And for those who might not know, just to briefly tell us, what is the 5050 by 2030 Foundation? The foundation is, uh, it is a, um, well, it's unlike anything else. It's quite unique. It's a research hub that we've set up at IGPA, the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. And we have a very singular vision of um, we want to see men and women equally share uh, leadership and key decision-making roles across Australia in the public sector and across our region by the year 2030. So we uh, we do research in particularly in the areas where we believe there's some significant knowledge gaps across Australia. We've done a major piece of research recently on uh, attitudes, gender equality attitudes across Australia, and we also um, design and implement various programs as well around gender audits, gender training, that's Sort of thing. Yes, well, gender, of course, become uh, such a, an issue in politics. Uh, it's been mm. a long-running challenge for for um, you know mainstream politics, of course, but a real issue in the last uh, few weeks with uh, the election. You know, in terms of the number of women candidates running, and then of course both sides selecting their front benches. So we'll come to those things. Our other guest uh, today is James Frost, a PhD researcher with the School of Politics and International Relations. The same. Uh, school with which Maria and I are both uh, associated as well. 
And James, welcome. Your research focuses on focuses on political messaging, particularly in the area of budgets. Yeah, political rhetoric, and um, I've been looking at budgets from, I guess, uh, Keating's first televised budget all through up until the last budget that was handed down, but also leadership and um, other qualities and party sort of dynamics within that. So, yeah, my my focus is on sort of that presentation and um, how you know, sort of how well they sell themselves to the public. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a fascinating area, actually. I'm, I'm really interested in, in what you come up with there because uh, having been a, a, you know, a, a reporter in Canberra and having, you know, sat through many budget speeches and, mm-hmm. and, and reported on uh, budgets and budget replies and, of course, elections and so forth, you know, the way things are framed uh, is so critical to the way or it tells you a lot about what the what the political parties or governments mm-hmm. are trying to do yes uh, but it also tells you about the you know how they're trying to connect with voters what messages they're trying to send uh, you know with sometimes some pretty uh, I, I suppose you know cold numbers yeah and quite fluffy as well like often they they used to become they used to be very procedural but now these days they're um, you know value statements vision mm-hmm. statements and most of them in the last in the last six years, I think there's been two that haven't been passed before an election. You know, they're, they're mm. just they don't even become they've not even entered the the Senate to be um, uh, legislated. James, I think there must be a really interesting element of that um, that study too into gender dimensions around sure. communications and, and messaging, sure. and whether or not we we're seeing in Australia a difference in the gender framing around, or, or the, you say, you know, your work is also looking at the presentation, the presentation, gender differences in presentation, style as well as messaging. I think that'd be fascinating. Sure, and and, and, and you see it all the time, the the treasurer and then the opposition, because I also look at um, budget reply speeches um, sort of a, as a paired sort of rhetorical contest. You know, they have to embody this picture in their party's mind or their mind of what the Australian people want to see. And so it's a very interesting sort of, um, uh, I guess, flag to see what the party or at least the leadership team kind of believe that needs to be put out. Yeah, and what they believe the mm-hmm. Australian public want to see. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing though, isn't it? Sure. So, I mean, if we improve the conversation, improve the messaging, improve the presentation, sure. I mean, that's what the public will want when they see it. Isn't it interesting too, if you think about Jacinda Ahern yes. from the New Zealand, the, her very different style of presentation and messaging, how the public has responded to that and now Australian ele- the Australian electorate saying they want that too. Yeah, and I, I totally agree and and it would be good to see a, a female treasurer and to see how that is that role is taken on because, you know, if we look back at Frydenberg's um, last budget speech, you know, he was hammering the table. You know, it was quite, you know, a dominating sort of affair. And we've seen in the past, you know, big statements up front, you know, like jobs and growth, mm. you know. Um, so it, it can become quite masculine, like it, it is quite masculine in mm. in terms of presenting these events. So, yes, it would be very interesting to see if that dynamic changes over time. Well, it's actually going to be one of the um, interesting dynamics in, in the lineups that we now have because we've had, obviously, the government has now announced its front bench. We know what the ministry is. We know who, who's sitting in all the key positions. And, and finally, yesterday, we're, we're you know recording this on Monday morning. Yesterday, uh, Anthony Albanese has outlined his front bench. Maria, any uh, surprises there? I think the the biggest surprise, I suppose, is uh, that Bill Shorten was not given a sort of 
uh, policy domain that might sort of take him out of the glare of everyday politics, defence or, or trade or something like that, but that he has been put into the National Disability Insurance Portfolio, which for those of you that can remember back to the halcyon days of the first Rudd government, um, Shorten was quite uh, critical to uh, recognising uh, that dis- disabled people basically needed a union and sort of corralled them um, together to lobby government mm. for the solution that was the NDIS. Yeah, if you had to name a, an Australian political figure who was crucial to the creation of the NDIS, it would be Bill Shorten. So mm. it's probably a smart move for uh, for Albanese really to. I mean, he had to put Shorten somewhere. He couldn't, you know. With and it's it, something. It's something that he's clearly very passionate about. Yeah. I mean, from and the moment that, he he entered Parliament, yeah. Bill Shorten has spoken very passionately about the NDIS and about disability. And in fact, it's the very first time I met him, he was speaking on that subject. And I remember coming away thinking, my goodness, and this was years ago, but thinking, mm. my goodness, that man's going to go places. He was so passionate. about Yeah. And the word was disability. that he was a little bit peeved. You know, he came in, thought, him, thinking of himself as a bit of a Bob Hawke like figure. You know, head former head of the AW, the nation's most you know, sort of powerful uh, ALP affiliated union, and uh, he, I think, he wanted a front bench spot pretty quickly, and he ended up with this. I think it was an assistant minister's position initially, and he thought, right, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this really well, and I'm going to, you know, really make a, a, a strong fist of it, and and so he did, um, you know, uh, lean right into it, and he came up with this, and uh, here we have all these years later, he's had his six years as opposition leader, and he's he's back at it. But I think what will be fascinating uh, will be the uh, way he goes about that, but also who he's up against is Stuart Robert, who was, uh, I would say, mm. potentially a weak link for the government. As the NDIS minister, yeah, and 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 the fact that I don't, I also think that Shorten would be quite happy to an extent with this role. Um, You know, there was a lot of speculation yesterday of foreign affairs or defence keep him out of sort of um, those really sort of partisan. Yeah, yeah, but NDIS, um, as Virginia said, that he's attached his name to it, so he can really prosecute a good case. So if there is, you know, a Lazarus with a double quadruple bypass (laughs) to ever happen again, you know, this you'd want to be in a place where you can shine. Well, this is, I think, a real test of character for Bill Shorten because he's clearly still in shock from the election result as to actually what he does. Like, does he be a, a, a Hayden and knuckle down and do a good job mm. or does he take the path that quite a few previous leaders have taken in recent times, which is to become a wrecker? I guess what's <laughs> kind of interesting about Stuart Robertson is that he is sort of a – scan- yeah. Yeah, Stuart Robertson, sorry, uh, is that he is a bit scandal prone. And, um, well, he's a minister who's lost his portfolio before. He's, he's also been yeah. associated with some, you know, um, pretty extraordinary home internet bills, for example, that uh, has never really been properly explained. $2,000 a month or something. Yes, yeah, so he obviously keeps very busy online. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, I think that uh, it it's just coming back to Bill Shorten, I think it, it is a very positive thing that uh, not only he took that portfolio, but if we think back to election night, the speech he made, I actually thought it was one of the best speeches I'd heard um, Bill Shorten ever make. And it seemed <laughs> to... Well, yeah, but sad, but it's but under incredible pressure, incredible pressure um, and, and personal disappointment, he gave a phenomenal speech, which I think indicated that his intention is genuinely to see the party, the Labor Party, move forward. And and that's what he was mm. signalling then is he's not going to be a wrecker, uh, and that he's not going to get in the way. But he he wants the party to move forward. Yeah, I would I would agree a hundred percent with that. That that speech was 
Un, um, it was gracious. It was, it was very mm. gracious. It was there's only two speeches of Bill Shorten's that I've ever really thought were excellent speeches. That was one of them, and the one following the day after Christchurch the massacre. Yeah. Um, mm. He sort of gave his true colours. You can see the picture of the mm. real Bill, if you like. So, you know, coming coming straight to the podium and saying, I'm going to step down and you know, mentioning that he'd already spoken to the Prime Minister, these things are difficult, you know, and can contrast that to um, Malcolm Turnbull winning the election um, in 2016 when he comes out all fire and fury. <laughs> yeah, at midnight. Um, after, at midnight yeah, and yeah. when the account hadn't been finalised. Yeah, when he wasn't end. absolutely sure he'd won yeah. and he was full of uh, full of sort of bile about, uh, yes. you know, the scare, scare campaign and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It, was a, it was a low point, I think, of Turnbull's yes. premiership, really. I mean, he'd... Um, Bad Malcolm. Well, <laughs> see, what we didn't know at the time was that he'd put $1.75 million in the yes. last few days of his own yes. money, in the last few days yes. to try and rescue the situation. And, and it may have been at that point, I mean, there was, there were seats in doubt and it may have been at that point that he hadn't rescued the situation. So, yeah. uh, whether, whether it was just the money, I don't think it was just the money, but, uh, obviously, uh, that's, that's more than most Australians will ever see in their lives, you know, in terms of a single sum, <laughs> yes. more than most houses are worth. And he just shelled it out to, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of salvage the situation. Imagine how Clive feels. <laughs> well, Clive, Clive probably feels pretty good actually yeah. because he yeah, owns, he owns a company in the, in the Galilee Basin and if that Galilee Basin is, 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 uh, is opened up to mining, then uh, his return on $60 million will be pretty damn good. You know, Mark, just going back to the issue of portfolios and, and Marie, you mentioned you know, possibly defence for someone like Bill Shorten. I think it's really interesting and I'm really pleased to see that a woman has retained the defence portfolio. And I think it was just highlighted for me on the weekend when we had the Singapore summit and uh, in the uh, – sorry, the shadow – Bill, of course, being shadow, but in the actual defence portfolio, um, we've got Linda Reynolds um, following Maurice Payne uh, and we have the head of DFAT, of course, being Francis Adamson. Mm. And then we've seen on the weekend at the Singapore summit uh, those women in a very, very important position, a very important role that Australia is taking right now, and particularly when there were such strong words from the um, the Chinese foreign minister and mm. Francis Adamson's response was very, very strong. And I thought, isn't it, it, it's wonderful to finally see some women and very well-placed women. I mean, Adamson in particular, former uh, um, Australia ambassador to Beijing, mm. um, you know, standing her ground and being very firm, very clear, very, uh, very, very professional, very solid. I, I agree. I think it's really interesting that when you look at, um, you know, for whatever other uh, criticisms you might make of the ministry, Morrison has maintained both the soft power and the hard power projections of Australia, that is the diplomatic uh, channel through Maurice Payne as foreign minister and Linda Reynolds as, as defence minister. Both of those are uh, held by, you know, mm. now very dominant women within the government. And that is, uh, you know, it's a statement to the world and and hopefully a statement to recalcitrants within the the Liberal Party that this is, um, you know, this is the future. And mm. the optics look much, much better. You know, the, it, it, it's almost as if they're, even though the the senior leadership team in, in terms of all, all you know, budget and um, treasury and home affairs are all the key players, all men, but the they're, it seems like a revitalised ministry in the sense that we do have more women back in into key spots, just like you were talking about, Virginia, um, which 
enables them to sort of reset in a in a way mm. from the last parliament when it really became such a, a obvious issue that there was just you know, women fleeing the party. Well, it was also a bonanza um, issue, really, because it's really hard. The, the the 16, 17, 18 years really highlighted the problem, not just of the government, but of political parties per se, the problem of representation of women. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, James. It's it's good to see solid women there. And I also think, just again, coming back to um, well, what, what happened on the weekend, the Prime Minister being in Honiara in the Solomons, the focus on the Pacific, this is really interesting for Australia. Australia too, the Pacific has a massive problem when it comes to the participation of women in politics, representation of women. Three of the world's parliaments with no women all exist in the Pacific. So for Australia to be focusing now on our, well, or pivoting more towards the Pacific and uh, becoming very serious about um, strengthening relationships, one of the things that clearly has to be done is is greater efforts towards uh, supporting uh, women uh, running as candidates, uh, learning the electoral process and running as candidates and supporting them financially, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the major, major problems yeah. across the Pacific with such a low, low representation of women. And and we see it. And in, high levels of domestic violence as well. Ma- yeah. I was just going to say, massive violence. I mean, Papua New Guinea rates as the most violent place in the world for women and they have no women in parliament. That You know, they did have yeah. three at one stage, but, you know, progress isn't inevitable and we do go backwards and they're down to zero again. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, on, on the more of a, sort of a mundane uh, Australian situation, I suppose, in terms of politics, because what you just said about PNG is, you know, extremely disturbing. Um, Labor's gone for 12 women and 12 men in its uh, front bench. Is that a, um, what, what does that tell us? Well, it, it tells us that um, if Albanese was a bit perturbed by having a, a deputy that was a man that he's he's you know rectified that by um going for 50-50 representation across the the shadow um cabinet um and that uh labor is proceeding with um its its quota which is uh working to kind of deliver women um into the talent pool but i guess what is kind of interesting is the factional dimension around um, what has happened with female candidates, which is that it's become apparent with the uh, with Ed Husick, who is from the New South Wales right, stepping down for his female colleague, Christina Keneally, also from the New South Wales right, that the New South Wales right, and, and perhaps the right more generally, has, has a problem with pre-selecting um, women. Now, last week, if you were listening, you would remember that we talked about how the labour quota works, which is basically that there are three selection pools based on the, the nature of the seats. And if the quota is not met in any of these electorate pools, the national secretary will spill all of those contests again. So obviously between the left and the right, they have worked it out that, um, that they have the right number of women, but they're not distributed across mm. the factions mm. and, and the, the right has effectively been free riding mm. off the left. So this, this will be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, and it's taken some political pain, I suppose, to correct it, uh, particularly as widely mm. commented that uh, losing Ed Husick to the front bench was a, a net negative for them. I mean, you, you'd, you'd want to, you know, I'm, I'm kind of minded of that feeling you have sometimes when two Australians make the semi-final of a major tennis tournament and you think, well, 
one of them's not going to be there because they're going to get knocked out by the other one, and that's a shame. And there seems no reason why you would you would want it. You would want both Christina Keneally and Ed Husick in your team. You wouldn't want uh, him to step down for you. Would want someone else to because there are a few others that you wouldn't mind seeing uh, punted. I think we also have to acknowledge, though, that what this says about having such a significant number of women in the shadow cabinet is that they have experience. That exactly. The, these yeah. are oh, yeah, experience. Un- Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I must say I've been really frustrated, Mark, with a bit of media commentary lately, um, including on a, a program you were on, uh, in which there was discussion about um, Keneally snatching a job. Uh, and it wasn't that they weren't mm. your words. Um, they were one of your colleagues. But, you know, the, I, I've read a bit about this in the last few days with reference to Keneally and, and others, uh, women, as if they have somehow taken what therefore isn't mm. rightfully theirs. The language, and I mean, James, I'm sure be, be, because you look uh, so closely at, at messaging, you, you pick up on this too. Some of the language around women re- getting into these um, important and senior and highly contested roles is, is actually quite derogatory. Yeah. And, and and some of it, people don't even realise that it's it's derogatory when they use it. It'd be interesting to see if um, Bob Carr, say, had the same um, language used at him when he. Um, sort of, um, it was a brilliant move. Yeah. It was a brilliant move. Yeah, it was a brilliant move. Yeah. Exactly, it was a very different situation. Well, and it very much framed Gillard's uh, premiership as well when yes. she was prime minister. That oh, she yeah. had you know stolen the, the the leadership of Kevin Rudd, whereas it, it yeah. didn't tend to sort of frame mm. Paul Keating's. Prime Ministership when he no he was just Bob playing Hall. playing politics whereas she was stealing she was taking something not rightfully yeah, yeah not Rudd, rightfully Rudd was hers. never a poor sport was he right <laughs> he didn't lose the game yeah. no not at all so, yeah. well, it, it also has echoes though I think of um, this kind of language that we're talking about of what the Prime Minister himself said in International Women's Day of this year back on the eighth of March you might recall remember he made comment about um. We want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse, <laughs> i.e. we don't want to see women rise above men or, so or meaning that men have to increase the aggregate up. number or is, yeah, I mean, it was, just zero-sum game. Yes, it's yeah. a very, very odd thing to yeah. say and a very silly thing to say. And un- unfortunately, I think it, it does reflect a you know that, that attitudinal, deeply entrenched um, gender Problem mm. uh, that the people such as as uh, he have, and in messaging terms, it was you know walking both sides of the street. It was sort of saying something in the first half of the sentence that sounds progressive, whilst yes. whilst giving comfort to the others who, yes. by yes. definition, should have to yes, uh, don't worry. accept some yes. change. It's the, uh, it's don't worry, there won't be any change. I mean, yes. you, you won't you won't be pushed aside just for women. <laughs> yeah. It's the most common trope in, in like for the last I don't know, twenty years in terms of yeah, women should um, be able to get the best jobs, best position on merit, um, on merit, as long as that doesn't mean that someone who's a man on merit um, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't get the job. Well, it's such a bizarre thing to talk about merit, isn't it? Particularly yeah. when we talk about parliament. I mean, to suggest that all of those uh, males in parliament are there on merit is just an absolute nonsense. Well, the international literature shows that not only do quotas work, when they're enforced, sure. but mm. it's actually not that you get, um, you know, just any old woman. You get excellent women. They're often overqualified, and mm. it's 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 the less merit- meritorious, the mediocre men that that yeah. lose mm. out. Mm. So it actually just lifts all boats. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Ab- yeah. absolutely. Well, look, uh, we're going to come back and talk about some of the head-to-head uh, contests, which I think are going to be quite interesting in the in the in the lineups. Um, so we'll take a break and uh, just remind you that if you're listening to this, you can. 
Talk to us on Twitter by at Apps Policy Forum, APPS Policy Forum. The Facebook group Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, let's look at uh, some of the contests that are uh, quite interesting in, in this now that we have both front benches uh, you know, named. Obviously, the, the first one is the one between Albanese and Morrison. What, is, what, what are we expecting there? Because these two are both you know, quite skilled interlocutors. They're, 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 they're good kind of verbal tennis players, if I can put it like that, not easily stumped. They're very similar Billy Bunting characters, <laughs> I think. Perfect description, yes. That, that's, I mean, they, they even look a little bit similar. But they're, oh, I don't know about that. Well, uh, and again, look, you know, James, you'd be the best to, to speak about this, but their messaging to me seems like it comes out of the same copybook. Yes, in, in a way, and it's also that, Pardon me, the style of speech. There was a really interesting article in The Australian last week from the speech therapist that worked with Shorten um, on Albanese. I didn't think that was very good, that piece. That piece. You thought it was good? No, I thought it was – it it, it hit the mark in terms of the fact that what we would consider, you know, in the academic world, in the professional world, you know, very good speech, we're not necessarily – we don't consider it as a priority in the political world. And the yeah, fact- and he was arguing that Albo's got all these deficits, but sure. for some reason it's going to it, it kind of works for him. Yeah. You know, he's, 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 he's not got particularly good diction, and, for example. Yes, and tends well, to hang on. Things. Julia Gillard had terrible diction and absolutely no, no, she did just not had an work accent. for her. <laughs> she just had an accent. <laughs> but he, L, L- Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Albanese has his elbow. He can't. He was the environment minister who can't say the word environment. Yeah, and that's, that's perfect. You know, it, it's like it. In a way, it speaks to you know many of the constituencies that um, Labor lost. You know, they don't. You know, polished is not you know in vogue at the moment. You know, m- think about Malcolm Turnbull. Well, there's a difference between being stupid and speaking <laughs> in simple language sure. that is clear and concise. And and Albo is clearly not stupid at all. No, that's and true. um and he is he is deft at um speaking simply in ways that sort of relate to everyone else using fewer syllables. Um <laughs> and he's good at creating space, you know, for his arguments um and space for um for basically for the opposition to sort of decide which sort of policy areas they're going to take and not take. Um, and so I guess- you think he's done that quite well, don't you, in terms of uh, this very difficult period after they lost the unlosable election? 
Yes, I think he's been. Um, he has. He's. He's sort of really. Um, he's been asked over and over again to like rule out certain policy areas, and I think he's actually been really good at um, shutting down. Uh, this set of questioning from reporters um, in a way that's authoritative, like, you know, like, well, I'm not going to engage in in this kind of um, dialogue. And, and it doesn't sort of sound kind of like weaselly either. Uh-huh. It's just a, a statement of fact. I mean, I think him and Shorten will be, sorry, him and Albanese and Scott Morrison will be kind of interesting because I, I agree with Virginia, like they're very similar in their sort of style. As, but I do think Scott Morrison is... Um, more uh, aggressive than Albanese. Mm. And so that will be interesting to see, I guess, which one of them uh, is more ruthless and does that, will that actually matter? Yeah, I mm. think it's going to be fascinating because I, I think that while Shorten was a very good match for Turnbull and showed that in the 2016, lead up to the 2016 election and then you know, making it so mm. close, he was, he was in, in a way he really did wrong foot Turnbull a lot. But then once the Libs had changed to Morrison, uh, we can see now that Shorten really started to struggle. And Morrison has this, you know, style of um, this sort of indefatigable style of always leaning forward, of always being the smart guy, and 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 um, never being sort of stumped by anything. Albo's got a bit of that about him as well, I think. Uh, less polished, mm. but uh, but similar. So I think the matchup between these two in Parliament, for example, which will be important in framing sure. the. Uh, you know, the psychology of how the opposition and the government relate. I think that matchup is probably better than were Shorten there against yeah. Morrison. And they're from, you know, they're not far from each other in terms of electorates as well. So you can't really have that um, that argument about, you know, this Melbourneite or the Sydneyite. Mm. You know, it's too differently raised and, you know, Albanese's story is, you know, something he can tout every election. Um, and yeah. I, I think they both have good <clears throat> stories, really. Like for their true. constituents, you know. Yes, it's true. Albanese's yes. raised by a single mum in a in a housing, housing commission, flights, yeah. yeah. And Scott Morrison is the the parents of like the policemen who volunteered all the time. Sure. So, but then you know, Kevin Rudd had a good story too. Sure, it worked. Ma- and it worked. Really yeah, tough yeah. Story. Yeah, yeah. I remember it in the um, Kevin O Seven campaign mm. about hearing you slept in the car yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So it sticks. <laughs> you know, it really sticks. I, I think it happened once, by the way. But you're yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's a, a real shame, though, that um, Albanese didn't uh, or hasn't got a, a female yeah. as a deputy <clears throat> and someone that is very different from him. And look, quite frankly, I mean, I, I know I sound like I bang on about this and, and I do, but I find it heartbreaking that we both leadership teams are, are male. And yes, I know uh, Labor has two women in the Senate. Um, you know, thank goodness for that. And the majority of uh, their uh, Labor seats in the Senate are, are women as well. But just to still have from both major parties, leadership teams that are all male and very blokey and very blokey oriented is, you know, in, in as we creep towards 2020, I think quite a disgraceful look. Mm. I'd like to cycle through a couple of others quickly as well that I think are going to be interesting. Obviously, the one that's really taken the headlines, you know, first up is the matchup between Christina Keneally and Peter Dutton. Of course, mm-hmm. we know that, you know, we've discussed how Keneally got there was uh, was was uh, you know uh, an unorthodox way. I mean, they had to sort of almost break the factional grip in order to uh, for for her mm. to get there. But she's certainly there on merit. 
Um, and Dutton, of course, is saying that she's ill-equipped. She's the least equipped person to be running border protection policy because she's, you know, made past comments where she was unhappy with, you know, boat uh, turnarounds and other aspects of uh, Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, so that's going to be one that's really interesting politically. Could, couldn't you flip this around, though? The fact that she has spoken uh, her from her heart and, and, as she said, her soul uh, about her, and I quote, instinctive dislike of boat turnarounds. Now, I think that's a really interesting term, instinctive dislike, <laughs> because <laughs> most people would instinctively dislike the horror of boat turnarounds. What sort of a person are you if you think if that you like they're it. fine? Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think the fact that she has been honest about that and is also now being very honest about this is the policy, this is what we stand for, um, no one wants to see anyone drown at, at sea, you know, I, I think could could, if played well, work in her favour. Um, she's she's not being stupid. She's speaking from heart, from soul, but also from a practical, pragmatic perspective. Mm. And I, th- I think um, also Dutton's unwavering. You know, his position is his position, and it will not change. And that, in the end, becomes a liability. You know, that that people's you know community perceptions change. And yes. you know, after five years, after six years, seven years, when people are still on um, Manus, you know, that it, it becomes problematic for someone who's stuck like that, whereas Keneally has already talked about the fact that just because we have a, we have a strong border protection policy, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to get these people off the mm. island I ASAP. And sh- shouldn't forget about our humanity. Yeah. Well, yeah, and to go into grumpy political scientist mode, I mean, politics is the last amateur profession. Like, what are any of their qualifications actually to run the state? That's actually not how we how we run our governments. Because if we did, we should have technocrats. Well, if we had, and if it was more professional, perhaps someone like Andrew Lee, and uh, we're sitting here in the ACT, the local, local member here, Andrew Lee, uh, he's... Um, struggled because he's not a member of a faction. Uh, he struggled to hold his place on the front bench. And uh, Warwick McKibben from the ANU Crawford School uh, tweeted uh, just the other day, when Andrew Lee, the best economist in parliament, is not in the shadow ministry, you know there is something wrong with the system. Mm. Seems like a reasonable uh, observation to make. Um, Andrew Lee's since been appointed to a kind of a half shadow ministry. He's uh, shadow minister for treasury and charities, that is assistant uh, shadow Assistant Minister for for Treasury and Charities, uh, but it's not really a full front bench position. Uh, that's pretty uh, pretty regrettable, I would have thought. Um, Mark, was, Andrew Lee, being you know our local member here in the ACT, is is one that you know I've watched for years and years, and always been utterly impressed by him. I've always thought that one of his strengths was that he was unaligned, but mm. there is something about him that I've noted over years. The senior press gallery here in Canberra uh, has not really warmed to Andrew Lee. Almost like there is a bit of an anti-intellectual theme going on there. Um, mm. He hasn't he hasn't seemed to be able to endear himself to a lot of senior commentators. Is that fair? Well, I think it's partly true. Uh, I, I, I've sensed that as well. I, I've certainly seen a bit of a reluctance uh, to uh, attend press club events that he's done and so forth. And, I, and you know, I've wondered about that myself because I think he's, you know, erudite and, and uh, you know, extremely well-credentialed. Uh, 
he's a fairly intense character, and I think you know to some extent that um, that puts people off. But I am minded to the sort of suspicion, almost you know, kind of uh, sort of Oche criticism of Barry Jones going way back. You know, I mean, it's sort of like it, it, there, there is a ten, you know, a, a little uh, sense of anti-intellectualism here. I think which is. You know, we don't really like brainiacs. Um, we don't like people who are too expert. You know, going to your point, Maria, it's the it's the last profession of amateurs, really. And <laughs> uh, and this guy comes along, and he's you know he's got all these credentials. He's an economics professor at this institution before going into politics. And uh, you know, is is he really not front bench material? No, of course he's front bench material. I mean, you know, I mean, we elect re- representatives to be our delegates and Andrew Lee is actually a, a really good representative for his seat given the demographics and educational profile of Canberra, you know, just on that point alone. Um, but it does sort of go to – there's been a lot of commentary in the newspapers um, around uh, the Labor front bench, which I found really kind of interesting, like this idea that, well, you know, this this factional system has sort of produced these perverse outcomes and, you know, it's it's been untied and messy. And I guess one of the things that really frustrates me about this kind of commentary is that, well, factions are one way of managing internal conflict within parties. They're pretty effective most of the time. The alternative is literally to have (laughs) the leader pick. And we've had plenty of cases in which- Or just to have the the caucus pick it. I mean, it doesn't have to be done by sort of sub-teams within the caucus. That's true. But I think, I mean, we're talking about people whose whole life is about organising Scheming in elections. and plotting and backstabbing and you know. this is the problem. This is the problem. I mean, people people are always kind of frustrated that um, you know that politics, these, you know, is too polished, is too clean. There's no disagreement. Well, you you can't have like a mm. real robust debate if you don't have the messiness. And part of the messiness is is um, you know factional um, deals or you know and deal making. Um, and it does mean that you will get some people of talent and some people of less talent. Mm. But we have just spent you know, 25 minutes talking about the fact that the the government's front bench Mm. has a similar situation. Some people have talent, some people have less talent. So it's, it's, it's actually not the um, selection mechanism that is necessarily the problem. It's it's the nature of politics. It's that not everyone who goes into politics is necessarily ministerial material, mm. right? But they uh, have a claim to seniority, and that's the spoil of politics. It's being a minister. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. We'll, we'll, we'll go from Andrew Lee, who's an economist and uh, you know would be suited to an economic portfolio, to another one that's a real feature of the uh, the realignment and the appointments, and that is uh, the appointment of the first Indigenous Affairs Minister, um, the um, what's his name? Ken White. Ken White. <laughs> I was thinking White Roy for a moment. I always just confuse those two. They were both in the Parliament at the same time. Uh, somewhat different in ages. Yes. Uh, but yes, Ken Wyatt uh, appointed as uh, the first Indigenous Affairs Minister who's an Indigenous person himself and the first time that portfolio is in the Cabinet. Uh, Faith Gashi, one of our uh, listeners, uh, has uh, contacted us and she's asked, uh, we have an Aboriginal person now as the first Indigenous Affairs Minister, which is really fantastic. And she says, sad that it took so long. Does this mean we might have a migrant in charge of immigration and citizenship portfolio at some point in the future? We're all migrants, aren't we? <laughs> in some form or another. Well, haven't haven't we learned over the last couple of years with so many parliamentarians being tossed out because of dual citizenship that there's all sorts, <laughs> of, good point. All sorts of migrants. The system's in not set up yeah. for people who are recent migrants. Having said that, I mean, uh, as we were just discussing about Christina Keneally, uh, she is the shadow uh, minister for Home Affairs. Labor has finally decided to you know match that 
that portfolio set up under the coalition. And of course, she is a migrant. So were the Labor Party to become the government, she presumably would be in charge of a significant chunk of it. And she's a migrant. Well, there you go. <laughs> Problem solved. Next one. <laughs> I, I must say, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the notion that uh, you need to have someone of that s- supposed identity to be the minister of, of that particular portfolio. I think it's fantastic that, that uh, we finally, finally do have an Indigenous person uh, as Indigenous minister. That makes perfect sense and I would prefer see women as ministers for women uh, rather than um, a male such as in Tony Abbott's day. But by and large... Luckily it, Abbott was so enlightened on those things. Well, he had three you daughters, know, he did, he Yeah, that's right. And he also had that, he did have that lady in cabinet. Sisters too. He did have, he did lady, have a lady in well, cabinet. Well, but <laughs> don't, don't forget there were two knocking on the door. Yeah, that's he, true. Yeah, there always, were two always knocking on the door. Um, but he did like to explain to the housewives of Australia what they really should do yes, while they're did. doing the ironing, what, how they should think. Anyway, <laughs> we, we digress. We digress. Yes. Those were darker but days. Those were different days. But I, I just, yeah, I think that it's it's not absolutely necessary that, that people take on portfolios for which they have a um, some kind of identity claim. And Im- immigration is a, a different kind of portfolio to women's affairs or Indigenous affairs in the sense that immigration really isn't about smoothing the path for immigrants, it's about managing the Australian economy Precisely. and its economic goals. Mm. Yes. Well, let's look at another one then. Chalmers v. Frydenberg. These are mm-hmm. two of the – these are both – it's Jim Chalmers, Labor's shadow treasurer versus Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer and deputy leader of the Liberal Party. These are mm. arguably two people who uh, – very easy to see them as future leaders. There are others as well, of course, but these two would probably be – on the top, on the top mm. rung. This is such an interesting uh, mm-hmm. pairing, isn't it? And I've got to say, Jim Chalmers, when uh, when he announced on was it Q and A on the ABC when he was yes. asked whether or not he would consider mm. running, and you could almost see this is consider running for the Labor leadership for the Labor yeah. leadership, yeah. yes. Yeah. And it was only two days after the election uh, itself, but you could almost see his mind sort of ticking over. Mm-hmm. Do I say it now or don't I? And if I do, I'll forever have to wear this. Um, it was an extraordinary moment. But there's obviously ambition there and, and rightfully so. And he's, ability, yeah. yeah he's only 41. He's a of, 41, a bit of a superstar. Did a PhD just um, yeah. in our department. And you spare yeah. shout yeah. out. And, yeah. uh, I read Written. it the other day, well, most of it. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah, well, you'd be one of relatively few Australians who've done that. But, uh, <laughs> well, you can download it. The, yeah, no, good on you. He's also that, published yeah. a book. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. And it, look, yeah. I think that he's no, both of these guys very are, interesting are I think, um, people of considerable ability. Yes. And they're also people of considerable popularity within their within their party rooms. You know, they're, they're personable even their, se- even their seats, even after the swing against Frydenberg, um, he is a very popular candidate mm. in Hawthorne and Kew, Melbourne, that's where I'm from. So, um, yeah, the, he's a popular figure and he he handled the Treasury role, you know, just falling into his lap quite yeah. well yeah. off the bat. Yeah. So how, to, uh, how do you think the two of them will, will um, spar? I, I think that... Well, they're very they're similarities, definitely. I think um, they're both good at cut through. Yeah, they're very and good they're good, and they and they both don't mind a bit of a bit of a joke. They'll use wit, yes, you know, ridicule yes, to yes. Uh, to sort of uh, attack their opponent. So, yeah, I think that's uh, a common feature now of the both treasurer and shadow and um, prime minister and um, opposition leader. That, that there's a yeah. lot more 
you know, um, yeah, attempt to be humour. That's true. But as you say, if it, you think about those as the four most senior positions in the in the parliament, and they're all held by men, and it does, yes. it does, it, it is unmistakably going to lead to a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a pretty raucous exchange. And history shows voters actually don't like that. They don't. That's one of the things about politics, Virginia. They don't like. Yes, I think that that's very true. And I think Jim Chalmers, though, has hinted at a slightly different style, I think, during the election campaign. We saw a bit of that because, quite frankly, I think many people, many of the public saw him for the first time. Um, he is, you know, measured and, and was, was un, uh, hysterical, mm. um, and very, uh, speaks very plainly, as Maria says, you know, he's, um, he's good at cut through. Mm. And yeah, I just, I think he's a really, Really interesting one to watch, and I'm not sure if Frydenberg has quite the same um, sort of uh, personal appeal. That, mm. Well, that I, I, I suspect that he does. I think he's probably more polished in in he's he's he's, he's got more energy about his delivery than. Chalmers has had so far. I'm not questioning the substance of either of them, but I think Frydenberg's a pretty good communicator as well. Uh, he's so, an excellent communicator. Yeah, we'll, he, have to, we'll have to see how they go. There's a couple of others that I want to look at, though, because I think they have really interesting significance. I'll put them all together. That's Bowen v. Hunt. Um, Chris Bowen is a former shadow treasurer and uh, Greg Hunt as a health minister, both in the health portfolio, and Shorten v. Stuart Robert. Now, I think what's interesting about uh, the, and that going back to that NDIS thing, I think what's interesting about these in terms of their uh, you know, political weight in the in the parliament is it will be fascinating to watch how much room they are given by these two shadow ministers are given by Labor's tactics committee, Maria, uh, because Albanese will, will be wanting um, Bowen to be landing you know blows on Chris Hunt, and it will certainly be wanting Shorten to land blows on Stuart Robert over the NDIS, but he won't want them to be doing so well. That they are the stars of the government. I mean, that's just a recipe for instability. Yeah, it's it's actually um, a, an interesting way to sort of see how collegiate leaders are, especially opposition leaders, by how many questions they give out to yeah. to their front bench. Um, and of course, you know, one of the things that you never really want to do as a leader is be leading the full blown charge against your opponent, um, especially if you're going to accuse them of corruption or something like that. As as Malcolm Turnbull found out to his his own um, his <laughs> demise. Own demise, yeah. But um, but these are interesting matchups. Like Chris, you know, this is a good opportunity for Chris Bowen basically to uh, remind everyone of his creativity and his policy chops in a non-economic portfolio. Because the thing that Frydenberg has over Chalmers is he's got all of Labor's policies, which <laughs> for good or ill have now been discredited, and some of them discredited unfairly because they've lost this election. Yeah. And he would just spend a lot of time throwing those in the face of the opposition. Yeah. And Chalmers was there. I mean, he wasn't uh, completely yeah, exactly. out of that uh, policy framework. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Stuart Robert will be interesting. As I said before, I think he's a bit of a weak link potentially of the government. He's obviously a Morrison confidant, and that's one of the reasons why he's being preferred in this in this NDIS portfolio. Shorten knows knows the area as well. He'll be looking to show that he's um, you know he's highly effective and that he. I guess if there is any chance of him ever coming back, then it will come from him performing very well and, and not, you know, sort of mm-hmm. uh, going into a funk. So that, that represents some danger, I think, for the government. Mm. But it may also represent a degree of danger for 
you know, for, for Albanese, uh, you know, for stability. Because I know I've had, you know, having worked up there, I've had, you know, front benchers say to me before, I can't ever get a question up in question <laughs> time because they, you know, they don't, they just don't get allocated the, the time to ask a question. And then you get ministers standing up and saying, it's great to have a, a you know, question from my colleagues behind me because I never get asked a question about trade, <laughs> for example, from, the shadow minister for trade or from the shadow minister for immigration. I mean, Shane Newman was, uh, you know, getting that <laughs> thrown at him by Dutton at one stage. Uh, presumably Newman couldn't get questions up through the tactics committee. I don't know. But mm. uh, it'll be, uh, be fascinating just to watch the dynamics of this. You know, the, as I say, the dual dynamics, what's happening across the dispatch box, but mm. also what it tells you about what's happening inside the respective uh, sides, particularly Labor. Isn't um, Bowen really going to struggle, though, because he is really quite tainted post this uh, defeat, election defeat? And, and I think that as time, I mean, you know, I think the Labor Party is, of course, still dwelling in it, but as time rolls on and finger blames are, or fingers are pointed in, in blame, Bowen's going to wear a lot of it for the very complex policy mm. um, reform package that he was, you know, un. Un, um, unmoved by people's, you know, concern about it, and you know, it was brave, it was bold, but it turned out to be, you know, he, uh, too too far a stretch. Now he's going to have that on his head every time he stands up, surely. Yeah, and, but and he's also facing um, Greg Hunt, who's also quite tainted. Her mm. um, so, and also facing against a health minister is always quite difficult because health ministers get to deliver good news often. You know, Greg Greg Hunt. Basically, um, kept, I guess, some of his, um, popularity by the fact that he kept releasing new drugs to the mm. market that were very popular. Mm. You know, you look at the health minister. Um, the bulk billing rates being yeah, actually climbing. It was good news. It's at record levels, actually. Even though Hunt himself is a diminished figure. Like, configure, uh, consider him now to when he was in environment, um, or was it energy when they got rid of the, um, uh, Carbon tax, yep. Um, he, yeah. I just don't. I, I think that Bowen will probably learn the lessons. I think it's a shame that that someone who was so passionate about the mm. reforms that he wanted to put through maybe was blinded by you know, the complexity of it all, thinking that people will figure it out. Well, that's funny because that's how voters felt. But, you know, it's interesting. You would, I would have thought that the Labor Party would have learnt by now. I mean, it has had real trouble selling hard policy reforms and difficult policies, yeah. but, you know, possibly very good policies for years now. Well, it's difficult. You only go back I to the RSPT. The is, yeah. you know, but, and they were done in – they were difficult to sell in government. In government. I mean, the, the, it was it, the it, communication around it that was just such a compound difficulty, I would have thought, to doing it uh, in, from opposition. I think one of the great lessons here is that if you've got complicated policy, don't try and sell it all from opposition because you just don't have – you know, the resources. Uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw and also the voters will just get to sort of yeah, and what's the frank view credit? Like, yes. I, I can I, I can explain it, but I mean, I asked uh, about ninety students of mine who were quite engaged. And well, if we had another half an hour, I'd invite you to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> See, that's what I mean. You know, just retirement tax, easy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, you know, it, it really does come back to you know what we've spoken about before. You know, the cut through message, cut throughs, and I, I really would have thought Labor would have just you know sharpened up their act when mm. it comes to it through. It comes to messaging, um, and yeah, well, going back to my point about Bowen, I think that uh, I hope he has learnt, and the party has learnt, 
um, about its messaging and communications. Well, look, we could talk about these things for so much longer. I know that you know we could talk about the fact that you know there are things that you know, happen in the Senate that aren't happening in the reps and all kinds of other contests. And mm. it's just been uh, so good to talk to you all, and uh, we'll continue these discussions as we go on. So, can I thank Virginia Hausegger, James Frost, Maria Tafliger? And this is me, Mark Kenny, signing off from Democracy Sausage. As I say, you can contact us by podcast at policyforum.net at the Facebook group Policy Forum Pod and the Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time on Democracy Sausage. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.